Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the Dean of Wellness talks about eating right when food supplies are limited. There are no bad food groups, but there are bad foods within each group. And so the real focus is that we want to try to optimize what we get out of the different food groups. A medical oncologist discusses how people with a cancer history can stay safe during the pandemic. I think uh, certainly we want to be able to weigh risk versus benefits, and so there's a lot of benefit for cancer patients, even those who are undergoing active treatment, to take advantage of the nicer weather to go on walks. And two people who care for COVID-19 patients who are recovering at home explain the transition from hospital to home. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with a medical oncologist about keeping people with cancer history safe as society begins to reopen during the pandemic. Then we'll hear from two professional caregivers about the transition from hospital to home recovery in patients with COVID-19. But first, Upstate's Dean of Wellness explains what's most important to know about eating food. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. This pandemic has changed the way many of us are eating. We find ourselves having most of our meals at home, and either because our budget is lower or because store shelves are still dealing with food shortages, we may be preparing meals with limited supplies. So I've asked for some help making good nutritious choices from Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an assistant professor of family medicine and medical director of integrative therapy. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanavati. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Amber. I really appreciate it. So there are a lot of reasons that our diets may have changed quite a bit the last eight months. What's important to know about the basic nutrients we need to make sure that we're getting? Well, I think the one thing that's uh, really important to emphasize even before we get into the nutrition side of it is that with this pandemic, there's been a, a huge psychological impact for a lot of people. Uh, and it's kind of gone both ways, but I'd say more uh, in terms of people not sticking to some of their healthier nutrition regimen, uh, oftentimes either because they're frustrated, uh, the amount of despair and distress that this kind of locked in phenomenon has had for a lot of people uh, has kind of thrown them off their game a little bit psychologically. Uh, and then I have some patients who have actually taken this as an opportunity to focus more, right? Because you can't do much else. Uh, and so what you do is then take the time. So some families have gotten everybody engaged in the food prep and food regimen, food culture within the household, uh, while others have kind of just thrown up their hands and said, you know what, can't find the stuff that I need, so I'm just going to get the stuff that I want. Uh, and that's not always the healthiest. So to get to your question, what do people need? What I'll say is that there are no bad food groups. So between carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, um, you know, all three food groups are necessary, but there are bad foods within each group. And so the real focus is that we want to try to optimize what we get out of the different food groups between carbohydrates, fats and proteins uh, so that we get the right nutrients uh, and the right nutrition and calories as well. No bad food groups, but I think some of us might have indulged a little bit in the junk food group. So getting back from that would be sort of doing doing away with some of the, the extra sugar that we're getting, right? Right. And actually, so with foods, the, the real thing is with these different food groups and Junk food group is a nice labeling, <laughs> uh, but what I'll say is it's about portion, proportion, preparation, and timing for the different food groups. So simply put on the broad scope, carbohydrates, so think about bread, rice, potato, pasta, sugar, carbohydrates in general should go down as the day goes on, 
Uh, they're a great fuel for the body, but we don't fill our gas tank when we pull back in the garage. We fill it before we go on a long trip. And so with foods also, the concept is that carbohydrates can go down as the day goes on, while healthy fats and healthy proteins, so we're talking about things like nuts, avocado, um, you know, for people that eat uh, animal protein, fish, turkey, chicken, uh, beans, lentils, legumes, uh, all of these things can be spread throughout the day uh, as healthy sources of starch and proteins and obviously vegetables. You know, the goal is to try to get seven to nine servings of vegetables a day. One serving being a measuring cup of raw or a half a measuring cup of cooked. And so if our listening audience really thinks about it, how many people get, you know, close to seven, let alone five, which was recommended by, you know, the Cardiology Association? Uh, how do you feel about eggs? So the thing about eggs is it's like a roller coaster uh, over the last, you know, decades, if you want to call it. Every few years we hear eggs are good. Every few years we hear eggs are bad. Eggs are a great source of protein, of omega-3. And again, for vegetarians, generally they don't eat them. But for people that do eat any kind of animal protein, and we even have eggitarians who eat eggs and vegetables but not other meats, um, the thing to think about is um, that the yolk, uh, for people that have cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, historically it's been thought that the yolk uh, has an impact on the cholesterol. So they've said, you know, egg whites are okay, but be careful of egg yolks. And I think to ride the kind of wave more evenly through the coming years even, what I tell people is if you're having, you know, two whites for every yolk approximately, you're probably going to be okay. So people that have an egg a day generally are fine, but the way we think about it is while there's a great nutritive value, if you have certain health conditions, you know, very high cholesterol or cardiovascular disease or some kind of gut dysfunction, uh, and some chronic inflammatory conditions, then you might have to be careful. And that's something to discuss with your primary care provider or your uh, nutrition expert. All right. So that's good advice. Um, okay. With thinking that there's really, in general, no food to avoid, there's still, let me ask you, which foods do you think give you the biggest nutritional bang for your buck? Which are the best ones? So I'll tell you from the vegetables, what we know is that the cruciferous vegetables, so broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kale, spinach, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, celery, those foods actually have, uh, they're a good source of calcium, good anti-inflammatory benefit in the body, anti-cancer. In fact, there are some smaller studies that have shown that three servings of any of those a day uh, has actually shown to stabilize or even potentially reverse plaque in arteries, which none of our pills do. Uh, so I think cruciferous vegetables, but, you know, the rainbow of fruit colors is fantastic and great to have. Uh, so I think that would be wonderful. Uh, I think about nuts and the value they bring, especially walnuts and almonds, help to elevate our healthy cholesterol, which we call HDL. Uh, so they have value. Um, then we think about beans, lentils, and legumes. And so the Mediterranean diet, which... A lot of people kind of, you know, espouse there's great data for, uh, for all kinds of health conditions. Uh, people remember the fish and the wine, uh, along with the olive oil and the yogurt and cheese and legumes. But when they looked back, it was the legumes, the beans, uh, that actually gave the best benefit for morbidity, uh, uh, which is sickness and mortality from all causes. Uh, and so, you know, beans, lentils, and legumes can be the primary source of protein. Uh, for most people, that would be a great foundation. And then we think about fruits. You know, what are good fruits? Well, fruits that are in season are the best fruits to have as a general rule. Uh, but, you know, even within fruits, for people that are calorie conscious, some of the berries are actually lower calorie, whereas things like banana can be a little bit higher calorie. Watermelon is really low calorie. Uh, so, again, you know, understanding the value of different foods and food groups. In terms of animal proteins, you know, fish tends to have benefit because of the omega-3 uh, and what that does in terms of inflammation, mood, uh, and overall uh, cardiovascular condition. Uh, but even higher doses of omega-3 have been associated with uh, stabilizing or impacting cancer in a positive way. Uh, so fish, then we think turkey tends to be more lean. 
Uh, then we think about chicken, and then you think about you know red meat. Red meat gets vilified, uh, but it's really how it's prepared. So red meat cooked on high heat, uh, charred or well done, uh, has a link with a chemical reaction that produces dioxin, which has been associated with increased risk for colon, bladder, and then in men, prostate cancer. So, you know, it's about preparation for red meat uh, and depending on the cut, um, you know, between medium rare, medium well, uh, using medium heat. And in fact, crock potting or making stews is a great way to get it evenly cooked without charring it, you know. Uh, but processed meats are a problem uh, in many ways because they've been associated with an increased risk for cancer in general. And so uh, things that are processed, packaged, uh, bacon, sausage, um, you know, ham, those are not your optimal choices. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Dean of Wellness at Upstate and a doctor of family medicine. And we're talking about how the pandemic has impacted our way of eating for, for many of us. So you've mentioned a lot about beans. And so I want to get specific. Beans are available in cans. Beans are available dried. There's a variety of types of beans does it matter which we're choosing, and does it matter how we prepare them? So there's a whole science surrounding beans as well. And, uh, you know, I think when we talk about it, you start off earlier with, you know, either what's accessible or what's affordable. Uh, and when you think about beans, first of all, canned, we generally don't recommend for pretty much anything. Uh, and part of that is because uh, historically with canned goods, the lining uh, has actually been associated with uh, potential risk for inflammation in the body as well. Uh, and so what we try to tell people is if you want to be economical and practical, getting dry beans uh, is probably the best way to do it. And how do you prepare them? You can soak them overnight. And then if you have a pressure cooker, you can pressure cook them and they're ready to go. Or you can cook them with your other foods. Uh, obviously, on uh, you know YouTube and other uh, online resources, you can find recipes and, and quick ways to prepare beans as well. But the dry beans uh, are probably the best to do in getting them overnight. Uh, people worry about you know increased gas. Uh, you know, again, I know this is a family show, but the reality is reality. Uh, people do worry about that. And uh, one of the things I tell my patients more as a light humor is to say. Uh, you know, just look to the person next to you and say, excuse you, right? Uh, but at the same time, the reality is with bean prep, um, especially when we soak them, if you drain them uh, and then use them, uh, sometimes there's less potential for gas. Sometimes, depending on the recipe that you're making, if you use a little bit of uh, baking soda, that can also ease the gas production um, and so, or flatulence rather. So, uh, I think from that perspective, there are ways to do it. But beans, lentils, legumes uh, are an excellent source of protein and healthy starch. Within the beans, uh, the more dense beans so can be more keto-friendly. So people that are vegetarian but want to kind of try to eat a healthier, lower-carb type of, of meal regimen or menu uh, would use some of the more dense beans like black beans and chickpeas over things like kidney beans or fava beans or the bigger beans in general. So should we be eating the beans with something else? I, I think a lot of people, you know, might mix them with rice. Uh, is there something healthier than rice that we could mix them with? So first of all, that's a fantastic point, uh, Amber, uh, because the reality is, is that beans actually have, and different beans have different essential amino acids now, this term, essential amino acids, refers to uh, the base molecules that uh, help with our building our proteins. Uh, and essential means the ones that our body doesn't naturally make. Uh, but in many ways, uh, some of the literature says that uh, these essential amino acids are almost in a, like a locked form that we're not easily able to access when we eat beans. When you combine them with rice, uh, that actually helps to activate them. So if you look at cultures around the world, you know, most cultures, if you think about it, they have some form of rice and beans, rice and lentils, uh, recipes that they have because it's a great combination for healthy starch as well as for protein. Uh, and obviously the way you prepare it using certain oils or butter, um, the healthy fats as well. 
Uh, now that being said, um, you know, with rice between white rice and brown rice and even black rice, uh, brown and black rice tend to be uh, healthier for us to have. Uh, and then there's also things like quinoa, which can be a great substitute. Uh, some people also use things like couscous in certain cultures. Uh, so there are definitely substitutes that can be had. Uh, and, you know, locally, you can find them in our grocery stores. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the important things people can do is recognize a couple of things. So how to get this type of healthy food in an affordable manner. Um, part of it requires a little bit of a price comparison, right? Um, so I, you know, I want to put a plug in for our local farmers markets throughout the community uh, because that's a, play, a great place to get fresh produce, uh, fresh product, uh, and the potential to be able to at least uh, negotiate and bargain a little bit so it becomes a win-win both ways. Uh, we want to support our local growers as well. At the same time, uh, you know, between our local kind of uh, vendors, whether it be, uh, you know, Wegmans or Aldi or Tops or even some of the other small grocery stores, uh, you know, different stores will have different price points for different things. And while it does seem like it's a chore, I've got a lot of patients who will go to, you know, let's say Aldi for some stuff, Wegmans for something else, uh, Tops for something else, or Price Chopper. Uh, it's kind of variable, uh, depends on the price point, but that's a great way to bargain. There are groups of people in our community who come together um, and either will uh, do group shopping and buy in bulk so that they can uh, reduce the cost per unit for them. And then also we have, uh, you know, kind of food co-ops uh, that also bring baskets of foods that people can have monthly, you know, kind of uh, subscriptions to. Uh, where you get seasonal produce. Uh, and a lot of my patients have learned to eat things they would never thought of because it came in their basket. So there are definitely many ways that this can be done in a positive way. So some fun experimentation, perhaps. Well, let me ask you before we run out of time, in terms of beverages, is there anything that we need other than water? So water is the best uh, thing to drink. And so, you know, this could be a whole different discussion because people will write back into you and say, well, you know, my tap water isn't the purest or I have well water. You know, what about alkaline water? What about spring water or seltzer? You know, uh, can I have carbonated water? Uh, and the bottom line is water is still the best drink out of all. When we think about things like dairy, et cetera, and I support our dairy farmers, New York State actually has a lot. However, um, you know, and milk is great for protein, great as a source of vitamin D, uh, and even healthy fat. Um, it's not necessarily that it's a necessity for us uh, as such, but we do need the calcium. We do need the protein. Uh, and if somebody doesn't have lactose intolerance and tolerates it, that's fine for them. Yogurt is fine if they can tolerate it. Uh, that's absolutely okay. But things like soda um, and or sugared sweetened beverages and even diet drinks uh, are not optimal. And things that have food coloring, um, you know, those are also things that have the potential to trigger inflammation in the body. Energy drinks, another problem uh, because people overconsume caffeine, which isn't necessarily harmful in low doses, but can have uh, effects on the heart and on your blood pressure. Uh, when taken in higher doses. Well, this has been some practical and very helpful advice. Thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's a doctor of family medicine and medical director of integrative therapy and the dean of wellness at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How you can stay safe during the pandemic if you have a history of cancer. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As businesses begin opening back up and more people are venturing out in public, how safe are things for cancer patients? who are at increased risk for COVID-19. I'm talking about this with medical oncologist, Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you. So if I have cancer and I'm still in treatment, is it safe for me to go out now? 
It's a good question, Amber. I think there, you know, it depends on each individual patient, uh, what sort of treatment they're undergoing, uh, and uh, their risk will vary depending on those factors. Um, uh, like anything else, uh, patients' comorbidities and uh, you know, uh, so other, so there are other medical conditions, um, and how immunocompromised they are from the treatment that they're receiving will dictate that. For example, uh, patients who are undergoing would be called cytotoxic chemotherapy, so uh, traditional uh, chemotherapy uh, uh, patients who tend to have uh, more, more often lower blood counts and lower white blood cell counts, so that they would be certainly at more risk than those who would be, say, undergoing uh, like anti-hormonal treatments for their breast cancer, for example, uh, where their immune system is relatively intact. Um, we also uh, are in the era of um, targeted therapies and immunotherapy, so uh, they tend to do better in terms of their Im uh, immunity and uh, retaining the immune system. The general rule, patients undergoing active treatment for their cancer can be more immunocompromised due to the underlying cancer itself. We've known that for a while, and we've also had early uh, data uh, when COVID um, pandemic started that patients who've had a history of treatment for cancer and who even had a history of chemotherapy, not necessarily undergoing chemotherapy at the time, were at some somewhat an increased risk. Um, I haven't seen any recent data looking at it more, more thoroughly, but yes, I think there's a general uh, understanding that there is, that's the case. So when we talk about cancer patients being at increased risk, it all comes down to their immunocompromised state. And did I hear you correctly that cancer can cause that on its own? It's not just treatment for cancer? Uh, that is right. And by that, I mean those who have uh, uh, active uh, cancer. And so, in, in a sense, you know, if you've had breast cancer or you had a history of breast cancer 10 years ago and you may be still taking an anti-estrogen pill, uh, you know, that the risk may be very, very small compared to someone who is... Uh, who has stage four breast cancer or stage four cancer of any sort uh, and undergoing chemotherapy. So there is, you know, so there is a, uh, there's definitely a variability there, right? And so a person could be on chemo or be undergoing radiation or immunotherapy. Stem cell transplant recipients, they would also be at risk too, right? Certainly. So transplant patients are always going to be at uh significantly increased risk. And that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, bone marrow transplant team, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, put a halt to certain uh, transplants for a, uh, for a little while, except for emergent uh, reasons. So, uh, you know, so the, yeah, they are especially increased risk for sure. And that's a good point because they, uh, they are severely immunocompromised. Now, what about someone that's several years out from cancer treatment? You know, they were treated successfully 10 years ago. Do, do they have to consider themselves higher risk still? Um, you know, again, I think there's some data that maybe if they received chemotherapy as part of that, uh, as part of the treatment protocol that in the past that they may be, uh, but I think they're still at lower risk than someone significantly lower risk than someone who is actively getting treatment right now. And, uh, you know, uh, but certainly slightly, uh, somewhat at increased risk compared to people who've never had treatment, for sure, yeah. All right, well, let me bring us back to talking about uh, someone who's actively in treatment now. As things start opening back up and the weather's much nicer, um, is it safe to go to open air spots like parks and beaches? So I think as long as they take uh, as as long as you take uh, common sense uh, precautions, uh, where you continue to maintain social distancing uh, and uh, preferably wearing a mask uh, if you're going to be uh, to avoid coming in very close contact with folks. Uh, I think it should be safe. Uh, open air should be safe. I think there's a balance. Uh, 
So I wouldn't categorically, uh, by any means, say they shouldn't. Um, uh, uh, open spaces with where you can uh, maintain social distancing uh, is, uh, you know, and then of course the the, uh, the uh, recommended hygiene practices of uh, of washing hands and uh, things of those sort, uh, things of that sort are going to be uh, helpful and important as well. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with medical oncologist Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. So let's talk about how safe it is to go to doctor's appointments, because I, I know some offices have been doing sort of remote appointments, but as we enter the phases of reopening, more doctor's offices are having patients come to the office. So what's being done to assure that patients are safe if they have a compromised immune system? Yeah, so here at the Upstate Cancer Center, we have a, a very rigorous protocol in place where we are screening patients right at the entrance, uh, screening with, questionnaire, with a uh, short questionnaire, and uh, meaning, um, you know, making sure patient, uh, no one gets, comes into the facility with, uh, who's had a, a fever or cough. So, and then uh, so, uh, loop surgical masks are still uh, required. Uh, for both providers, patients, uh, and even guests, right? Um, and we are minimizing uh, uh, family and uh, uh, non-essential visits. So, so I think we've taken a lot of precautions as an institution uh, that's applicable to the cancer center as much as it is for the entire uh, university hospital system. In terms of office visits, so, uh, what we have done in oncology is try to, as much as possible, to minimize person-to-person uh, uh, -person physical visits uh, by utilizing uh, telemedicine, um, and been quite successful. I think uh, we continue to have an uptake of around 30% um, uh, in terms of all office visits. Uh, uh, so patients who do not who do not require infusional services, so patients who do not need to come in for uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy infusions, those who are on um, oral medications, targeted therapies, hormonal treatments, we've been able to minimize their need for in-person visits. Um, so we've been able to cut down on the traffic uh, foot traffic into the uh, cancer center. Uh, we have been relatively successful even in the infusional space to do so. Um, there was a recent survey of around 55 cancer centers across the country. And I'm happy to say we've, we've, uh, we've uh, done better than most by cutting down the infusional volume by 16% compared to less than 10% in many cases in other centers. I think part of what we can do successfully is to continue to uh, utilize uh, you know, technology, um, uh, telemedicine technology to um, to minimize uh, in-person visits as much as we can. What do you advise cancer patients or cancer survivors to do if they suspect they might be infected with COVID-19? Are they supposed to call their cancer doctor or their primary care doctor? Before each visit, especially if they're going to come in for an in-person visit, we uh, over the phone we do screen uh, patients beforehand before they even come uh, before they even uh, uh, hit the entry point. Um, so they can contact their oncologist or their primary care physician, and we have uh, we have the hotline numbers that they can call where they can still get screening done and avoid having to come into the facility itself. And we've talked a lot about patients themselves, but in terms of their household contacts, their spouses or children or parents, um, what do you advise in terms of the household people? Can they go out and interact? Can they go grocery shopping safely Can and then come back home? Are there extra measures that they need to take to try to help the cancer patient or survivor stay healthy? Yeah, that's an excellent question because uh, unfortunately we know that around 50% of these uh, of cases are asymptomatic carriers. Um, and so uh, obviously we'll, we don't live in isolation. So up cancer patients live as in, 
in a household where there will be uh, family members who need to go back to work, uh, you know, grocery shopping. Uh, you know, to us, it's. Uh, I think uh, if they have family members uh, younger, um, uh, either children or grandchildren, who can do grocery shopping for them uh, and deliver them to the uh, to their doorstep, that's great. Um, but then when it comes to really immediate family members who live with them, uh, like spouses or even children or grandchildren, uh, that can be much more of a challenge, you know. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to completely avoid exposures to immediate family members. Do you recommend that cancer patients get tested? I would say uh, no. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sam Benjamin from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink On Air, what's important to know about recovering at home from COVID-19. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As a way to provide ongoing support services for COVID-19 patients, Upstate created a COVID transitions clinic for patients who were recovering at home. Joining me today are two of the people involved in that effort, Diane Nano, who is a nurse and the director of transitional care, and Dr. Ahmet Damoon, who is one of the physicians taking care of COVID-19 patients through telehealth visits. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me have you start by explaining what the COVID-19 Transitions Clinic is and why it was needed. Uh, so uh, the COVID Transitions Clinic, um, uh, the uh, the pandemic really made us rethink how we approach healthcare, uh, at least uh, in Syracuse and in Upstate. Um, so our focus is inpatient care and outpatient care, of course, and we were so worried about overwhelming our inpatient uh, capabilities, our ICU capabilities. Um, the one thing that we thought about was how can we support that and also uh, uh, protect the hospital uh, by providing support in the outpatient setting, um, and how can we do that effectively? Uh, and that was the uh, that was the impetus for this. Um, the reason why um, we partnered together, um, uh, Diane has been involved in transitions in care, um, and um, uh, I've worked as a hospitalist at Upstate for the last ten years. Now I do primary care at Upstate, uh, and seeing both sides. Um, we uh, saw the important role that she plays in uh, those transitions of care. So we thought, okay, if there is someone who is COVID positive, and if they are found to be COVID positive, either through our screening clinic, through coming through our emergency room, or if they're sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, uh, the question that we asked was, how can we support them when they're at home? Um, this is, there's so many unknowns with this disease. Um, and um, how can we provide the best possible care for our folks at home? Um, and if things are not going well in the outpatient setting and we need to provide more intensive support, how can we facilitate that as a group? How can we get people to the hospital, to the emergency room? Um, so uh, that was the background and why this was created and why we thought of this. For patients that maybe didn't need to be admitted to the hospital, but did need to be kind of followed. Exactly right. Um, and uh, initially, there was so little that we knew about the disease that our worry was if someone is found to be COVID positive or suspected, uh, suspected of having COVID, we didn't want the default to be, oh, let's just admit everyone, uh, because if that if that would be the case, we'd be overwhelmed as an institution and as a system. Uh, so if we had a robust system for providing care in the outpatient setting, where if you think about just um, a care and chronic care as well as acute care for patients, um, 
this is not something that I thought about previously because uh, previously I just focused on inpatient medicine. Um, a lot of uh, robust outpatient care can prevent a lot of inpatient admissions. Um, and uh, overall, it's um, much less disruptive for patients. Uh, it's much safer for, uh, for patients. So it's just a change in uh, how we thought about how to take care of our sick. Can you give me an idea of how many people have made use of the clinic since it began? Diane? So, go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Um, no, I'd love for you to chat. Yeah. Um, so we've had, we've had about 138 patients um, that have come through the clinic. And as, as Dr. Dumoulin mentioned, um, some of those patients have been hospitalized. Actually, we're up to one, uh, 146. Um, some of those patients have been hospitalized. Some of them have been seen in our emergency room and some in our COVID um, transitions, uh, in our uh, COVID screening. So the, the acuity of their illness has really um, been very different in some, in some accounts. And just to expand a little on what Dr. Moon said, when this thing started, we really didn't know what the trajectory of this disease was gonna be. We really did not know. So we learned a lot while we were going um, and um, we were able to really tailor our care to what we learned. Some examples of some of the needs that have come up among people or families that are coping with a COVID-19 positive person. Uh, so um, uh, from a provider standpoint, how can we best assess our patients? How do we know whether they're safe at home? How do we know whether they're improving, stable, or getting worse. Um, so uh, Diane uh, worked very hard to, to get us that information, um, uh, including uh, getting um, tools such as pulse oximeters uh, for folks who are discharged from the hospital. Uh, her relationships with visiting uh, nursing services has been very robust. So we're able to get a lot of information to see how someone was doing in the outpatient side. So I'd like to ask Dr. DeMoon how it's been taking care of patients via telehealth, because that's how you stay in touch with them, right? Exactly right. Um, it's a very different paradigm for us. When we all uh, went through our medical training, we've always had a patient in front of us that we could talk to, uh, that we could um, we can listen to their lungs, we can hold their hands. And this has been very, very strange. Um, of providing care through the telephone as well as through this video audio interface. Um, but um, uh, it's made us reframe, um, you know, how we can connect with patients and has made us, at least made me think about how I can connect with patients for other medical conditions in the outpatient setting besides just the usual way of a nine to five in a clinic uh, setting. Um, um, uh, depending on my schedule for half an hour or 15 minutes at a time. So this uh, telehealth approach is, um, it's, uh, um, they're definitely uh, challenges. They're definitely, um, they're definitely technological challenges. Um, it's amazing to see um, how families are able to band together so that um, they're able to support their 85 year old grandmother in setting up a, a a video interface so that I can FaceTime with them. Um, and it's also amazing to see how someone's breathing, which initially may be labored, uh, improve with time. Uh, it's, in, uh, it's really interesting to see how um, uh, through telehealth, um, a lot of what we do and what we should be doing is really about listening. Uh, and sometimes um, uh, there's, um, uh, a one particular patient that we took care of uh, who uh, lost a significant other to COVID uh, and uh, was discharged home. And when we uh, contacted this individual over time, uh, fortunately, this individual improved from a COVID standpoint. But I called uh, every day more as a more for psychosocial support for this individual. Uh, and 
uh, you know, we all we all choose medicine, and in some way or the other, because we want to help people. But in the uh, in the the day to day of what we do, we sort of lose sight of that. Uh, so it's help. It's unfortunate that it takes a pandemic for us to reconnect with our patients, uh, and it's. It's really interesting when we're connecting with patients through telehealth that you still have that connection, that bond, and that really, really special connection. So uh, it's been it's been really invaluable for me. Diane, can you tell me about the COVID comfort kits? Sure, happy to. Um, so what we do for our patients who are who we enroll in the COVID transitions um, clinic. Uh, we uh, we provide them with a thermometer. We provide them with masks. Um, we provide them with information on contact tracing, um, information about quarantining, medication dispenser, as Dr. Moon mentioned, an oximeter if if we're concerned about their lung status. Um, there's a homemade card that um, that we that volunteers had made um, for folks, and then we're putting in other other items that um, that might be needed uh, by the patient or family. Um, and just to just to expand a little bit on what Dr. Moon said, I'm sorry if this you know doesn't really flow a little bit. Just one thing I want to connect, I want to correct our um, the number served. We're up to 178. I just looked at our dashboard. So um, more numbers than, than we said. And the other thing that is is just really important um, is we're treating families. Um, if you think about it, this is a contagious illness. So sometimes we have entire families who are dealing with COVID. Some have symptoms, some don't, but they're isolated. Um, so if, if folks are not, you know, with their families, they're they are truly alone and they're quarantined for 14 days. So what what Dr. Kamoon was describing as this support really became a lot more important than I think any of us realized it would be. Um, and it's it was really um, it was really a connection to the outside world to a lot of these people. For having cared for so many people with this disease, I'd like each of you to share with me what you've learned about the disease, Doctor Demoon. It's taught me a lot of uh, humility when it comes to um, dealing with medicine, and especially when you're dealing with an infectious disease that we haven't seen before. Uh, so, um, uh, once again, it's taught me before to, uh, to listen more because there may be subtle signs and symptoms. For example, if someone uh, has been getting better and you followed a, someone for a week and they don't have a fever anymore, their shortness of breath, breath is better, but then all of a sudden there's a change. The question is why? Um, we've, uh, we've been able to find and diagnose a number of patients, for example, who've had uh, blood clots uh, related to COVID after the fact. We've been able to find um, folks who have had pneumonia and then they've had a diarrheal illness secondary to the antibiotics, something called C. diff after the fact. So um, um, it's a t the, uh, the basic lessons are, are very broad. It's so surprising sometimes how someone with COVID can be completely asymptomatic. Uh, and I've had some folks who have literally texted me a video of themselves running in the backyard because they feel so good. Uh, and, uh, uh, and other folks who are uh, so sick that we've had to admit to the hospital and uh, bring them to the ICU. So it's just, it, uh, it's, um, it's made me respect what I don't know. And there's a lot that we don't know when it comes to all uh, illnesses, but especially with this uh, uh, illness where it affects older folks differently than younger folks, uh, folks with um, comorbidities, uh, those who are immunosuppressed, uh, folks who have chronic lung disease, um, differently than folks who are younger and healthy. So um, the uh, it's uh, keep it keeps on teaching us. Thank you, and and Diane, what about you? Yes. Um, so one thing that we didn't talk about is it's how the workflow of the clinic um, goes. So what's happening is that we're capturing these patients on our COVID um, dashboard, and then members of our intensive transitions team, which is case management and social work, 
are reaching out to these patients um, first and then um, passing off to um, our physicians, such as Dr. Moon and, and their follow um, until symptoms go away. I think one of the things that's really important um, for, for um, us with this is the importance of the social determinants of health. So we're, as we're looking at patients, you know, their clinical status, as Dr. Newell was describing, we're also, um, we're also realizing that um, a lot of these folks have problems with housing. Um, we were working, we had to work to get some people food, medications, um, really anything that they might need. It was in the middle of the summer, so air conditioning was an issue for some people. So. You know, just reaching out to community resources to be able to connect people with things like this that was really important for their comfort. And if you think about it, we were asking them to stay at home. We were asking them to quarantine, and that's really hard to do in a very hot house. Um, so that was important too. We connected some folks with insurance um, and also with primary care if they did not have primary care. been working on sort of the front lines in Syracuse since this pandemic started at the end of winter. So can you tell us what it's been like and how you see things playing out? Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, we, um, I'm not sure as we um, uh, open up um, with respect to our gyms, with respect to schools, with respect to colleges, how things are going to change. Uh, I think another unknown is what's going to happen uh, when flu starts picking up and our other respiratory viral illnesses start picking up. Are we going to have low, smaller cases of them because everyone's masked and is being careful? Or are there going to be more cases? And is it going to be very confusing for us to parse out what we're dealing with? Um, uh, I think we're just uh, in a situation where there are lots of uncertainties, which is very unsettling for a lot of folks. Thank you so much to Diane Nano and Dr. Amit Damoon, two of the people at Upstate who are involved in the COVID-19 Transitions Clinic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Corinne Spaulding works as a medical technologist in Syracuse, New York. She sent us a beautiful reminiscence of her mother and family, triggered by a chance visit to an antique store. Here is The Things We Lose. I press my hands against the window of the antique store. The image in front of me has stopped me dead in my tracks. I see the hazy reflection of a middle-aged woman, hands cupped around her eyes. Through the glass, a kitchen table sits, its sphinx-like presence poised as the centerpiece of the old shop. I walk in. The same kitchen table we sat around as children. I can tell because I've bent down to see if the initials CM are still dug into the flesh of one of its legs. They are now barely visible, as the blood red of the mahogany has been treated and oiled to shiny perfection for the next person to take home. The same sturdy table that held buttery potatoes, savory meats and gravies, puddings, pies, and pancakes. The same table I climbed on and then fell off of, smacking my forehead on the tumble-down. The outstretched snowy road led to the hospital, my mother holding me on her lap, exchanging cloth after cloth on my head, the crimson drowning out the virgin white of the linen towels. Five stitches was all it took. Clothes were sewn on the table. Piles of denim lined the surface of the table on Saturdays, my mother furiously repairing the blue and black crumpled pants in the later afternoon. Sometimes she would stay up late and sew Halloween costumes or hem party dresses. A cup of black coffee always sat on the table. I would dunk my cookies in its dark, bitter taste as I watched my mother work. I would spend years doing homework on the table, with the dull buzz of the overhead light cheering me on, the hope of a degree someday, a way to make a difference. My mother never worked outside the home, her main goal to nourish the family. As reliable as snow on Christmas morning, 
Three meals were laid out on the table each day, until one day the meals appeared in new places, like hospital rooms and outpatient clinics. The drip of the chemo like an hourglass. The table piled with unopened mail and flowers from neighbors. The table looked somber as it held the last things it would in our house. Soon after, the rapid auctioning of anything value happened to help with the cost of health care. A marching progression of furniture exited the front store door early that spring. The table was the last to go. It begs me to touch it. I rub my hand over the bronze hide. The grains are dark and shriveled under my hands as my fingers run over the familiar landscape. The slight dip of the table toward the middle, the worn notch at the end of the tattooed leg, a small wound on the table's shoulder where a ceramic bowl had been dropped onto it. My familiar friend has no price tag, and I find this fitting. It looks unclothed and alone there in the store, joined only by fellow pieces of naked furniture. I know they all hold a story. My hand falls limply away from the table as my feet carry me toward the door. We say farewell again. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll look at the upcoming flu season and meet a new cardiac surgeon with a new way of treating atrial fibrillation. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.